0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, June 12, we'll be looking at the police raids on journalists and the massive really, really bad ideas about how to protect press freedom in Australia. And we'll also talk about the conservative push in America to blow up the historic alliance with libertarians. And finally, we'll look at Andrew Bushnell's new report on prisons and ask why is spending on prisons growing so much faster than that on police and public safety? As always, we'll close with our Books and Culture segment. Today, we'll cover the BBC's wreath Lectures on the expanding empire of the law, yet another show about Chernobyl, a new book about Homo sapiens and our so-called superintelligence, and for me, it's the return of HBO's Deadwood after a 10-year absence. Looking forward to that. Uh, Big welcome to our panellists. First of all, my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT University. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be back. Yeah, It's great to have you. And uh, IPA's Director of Communication, Evan Mulholland. Great to be here. And IPA Research Fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Thanks for joining us. should be a good one today. Don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate to support our research and our many podcasts and massive, truly massive, digital footprint. Of course, uh, it's that time of year. Our end of financial year appeal is in full swing. If you don't like paying tax, and who does? This is your chance to get a tax-deductible donation receipt and uh, talk to your accountant. So give the team a ring or do it through the website. Now, issues. First up, media raids on on journalists by the Australian Federal Police have been very much in the news, Chris.
1: Issues indeed, Scott. So last week there were two Raids um, executed on by the Australian Federal Police on journalists and um, media organisations on Tuesday. The News Limited journalist Annika Smithurst was um, uh, her home was ex- there was a warrant executed on her home. The AFP said it um, was investigating alleged leaked leaking of classified information. This was in regards to some new powers that were being discussed in the government um, that the Australian Signals Directorate, which is the Cyber intelligence agency um, would be able to, uh, the, the ASD would be able to access the emails, bank records, and text messages of um, Australians. So that's a domestic anti terror power or domestic surveillance power. The next day, the AFP then raided the ABC itself, the Ultimo offices in Sydney, looking for documents about the publication of allegations of unlawful killings and misconduct by Australians special forces in Afghanistan. Um, there were apparently hundreds of documents, um, defence documents leaked to the ABC, held by the ABC, and the um, uh, AFP was trying to you know, find that and obviously hunt down who had leaked those documents as well. The Australian also reported that further raids were planned for this week but put on hold as well, so they were potentially going to um, follow it up with some more. There's, I think, a lot to talk about, with this. Um, I've uh, been talking to a few people who, um, m- my sources in the know, suggest that the there wasn't actually a relationship between these two raids, and the AFP didn't really overthink this, and they didn't think that it would look at all bad, but obviously it does look absolutely shocking when you've got the Australian Federal Police um, raiding uh, f- free press. Um, so so there's, there's a lot of big issues here. I, I want to start with, though, the issue of holding classified documents. Um, so the ABC and um, uh, Annika Smithhurst was holding classified documents. obviously they're classified and it was illegal to leak that information, but should it be illegal for the ABC or News Limited or whoever, whatever media organizations actually hold those documents? And should we be concerned if they are treating it uh, a- a- as such? And Andrew, I thought this might be something that you you had a view on.
2: Yeah, well, back in the day I, I did work at the Department of Defense, uh, and I do have, um, you know, I've sat through the, the annual security briefings about how to handle classified information a number of times. Uh, and I think it comes down to I think how I think. Firstly, I would say that classification is necessary. That protecting what it is that our military does uh, and how they operate is important for national security. Obviously, it's important for people to be able to feel that the military is capable of defending the country as well. Uh, I think that how serious it is, obviously. It depends on how highly classified the information is. There there is a reason that we have um, different levels of classification. Anything that's uh, above a secret classification, when you handle it and you actually have a clearance inside one of the defense agencies, you sign for it. You sign it out of a secure safe, you put your name to it, you sign for when you put it back Handling classified information at that level incorrectly is a crime for people who have clearances. So, naturally, it's a crime for people who don't have clearances. The issue with this is, I would say, is not whether it is appropriate for the federal police to be chasing up the mishandling of classified information, but the thing that gets alighted here is on what authority does someone in the Department of Defence or in the ASD or in any of our other agencies leak this stuff to a journalist? On what authority does one individual take it upon him or herself to override the the law as passed by the parliament uh, and the, the, the implement, implementation of that law by agencies representing the entire country? And I think the scandal here is the idea that it is simply... Uh, voluntary whether or not you abide by the law around classification. It's not voluntary. Those laws exist for a reason, and the Australian Federal Police is investigating for that reason.
1: I mean, there is an interesting point here that... um, uh, Sorry, all of that was interesting, Andrew, to be clear. Um, But there's an interesting issue here that um, uh, the ABC and Smithers, as far as we are aware, are not the targets of prosecution. It is precisely those, those, I mean, self-styled, Whistleblowers, but exactly on the, right. on it's the not on really
2: a media raid. That is misbuilt. That is a well. Misbil- I mean, it's a
1: raid of the media, to be fair. Yeah, but not not, not <laughs> no, as I media, not, me- not media,
0: uh, qua media. And- no, no, but no, I no, I, I dispute that. I, I I have some sympathy for uh, the journalists when they talk about the chilling effect of such raids. I mean, uh, Anika was uh, at home, you know, getting ready to go to work. And, you know, the, the AFP comes knocking on the door. I
3: mean,
2: they can't, they and they can't literally
3: be, raided her entire house down to her underwear drawer. Yeah, lit,
0: right. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, that... that,
3: that well,
2: I mean, with the implication of that sentence so, being so, that it's entirely plausible, permissible to mishandle classified... Documents as long as you put them, no, in no, your no underwear but entry. no, no, no but no, you're, imp- no, no. you're you're implying
0: <laughs> that it has no further implications for, for media freedom. Oh, that it, it's simply an issue to do with the handling of classified documents. Of course, it has implications for media
3: freedom. Every journalist now will freedom. think twice when receiving this kind of information about whether their organisation or their home will be raided well, by Quite rightly, because
2: if you if you mishandle, if you think there, are, if you have misgivings about classified information that you are in possession of, there are processes within the bureaucracy. ...to raise those concerns. All of these defence agencies have an Inspector-General. Uh, there are whistleblower protections, provided you do it in the right way. It's not like the law has never contemplated the situation that we find ourselves in. Now, I do think that when we talk about the first of these raids... ...which is um, was leaking about a, a law that might come into effect... Um, ...certainly debate around that law is valid, legitimate. That law is, again... An example of the way that our agencies will always ask for the maximum powers that they think they can get away with. Um, and so I have absolutely no uh, dispute with anyone about whether or not those laws are a good thing. They are probably not. Um, that said, if you have those misgivings, these agencies have mechanisms to deal with that, and it's not, it should not be your first recourse, or even I would say, except for an extraordinary circumstances, your last recourse to just make this information public. That's not your decision to make. Look, and
1: and and there, there absolutely are those whistleblower protections. Those whistleblower protections are not perfect though, to be, to be very clear. And they're very bureaucratic and, um, they don't always uh, function as we would like. Um, but there are a lot of whistleblowers who would rather not go through that process and would rather get the big splash on the front page of the Australian not the age or, or whatever it is, um, and, and so you can you know, understand that. But, but you, are, you are mixing up these two very distinct things, I think. If you have signed up to um, uh, be able to hold and look at classified information um, uh, you you are protected by whistleblower protections, but um, you are liable for mishandling that classified information. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I'm not concerned about the whistleblowers in this context. I am concerned about the free press, and I am concerned about we as citizens having the capacity to know what's going on in our government. And in this context, it's not just about did they raid to News Limited, uh, a news-limited journalist and, and the ABC – they rated it on information, on on in defence of information that we should know about. So we should know that the Australian Signals Directorate was proposing to conduct domestic surveillance, a foreign surveillance agency wanting to do domestic surveillance. That's a huge thing, and we deserve to know about it, even if the legislation never went through. It is also significant, and we do deserve to know, about potential unlawful actions committed by our troops in defence of individual freedom and democracy around the world that i uh, i mean this is obviously an ongoing legal matter and i'm i'm uh, but i'm deeply concerned if we don't think that that's significant for australians as citizens so, to know so so
2: if i understand it correctly your your issue here is entirely with the chilling effect you've said that the investigation is not into the journalists that the journalists are not facing criminal charges the leakers are the ones that are sort of the subject of the criminal investigation therefore the only issue really is with this chilling effect. Now, this chilling effect may well be real, but it does need to be uh, balanced against the ability of the bureaucracy to float options for policy. Now, it's not clear whether this would have ever made it out of a room, right? Yeah, this, but I don't ru- really
1: bureaucrac- care about the freedom no, of no, the no, bureaucracy bureaucrac- to come up with ideas that are uh, deeply illiberal.
2: <laughs> bure- bure- bureaucracies have to operate this way. Transparency is not always going to get you the best result the the we have this expression you know if you're a public servant frank and fearless advice now that, that's obviously like, <laughs> that's that is the most that, self-serving yes, it's very it's a very <laughs> self-serving idea but these the, and i wrote about this in the, the ipa review about this I, I wrote a review of a book called the tyranny of metrics and one of the points We're, we'll that link jerry, to that yeah one of the one of the points that jerry muller makes in that book is that transparency is a tool to be applied at certain stages of policy formation and that exposing policy I mean this happened during the Abbott government just while I'm on this on this thought that um, I can't remember exactly what it was but it was floated that there was some sort of radical proposal that the Liberal government was um, considering and it was one it was misreported it was one of four options that PM&C had presented to cabinet
0: yeah but look you know and 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 so what and so what, really? So it was a misrepresentation by a newspaper. I mean, if you believe anything you read in a newspaper, you're a mug. But the point the point is not about an individual story or an individual newspaper. It's it's but then about. But what do you care it, about the chilling? No, effect? no, no. No, be, no, this is more than the chilling effect. And and all Chris was saying that in this particular instance, there may not be particular uh, charges levied against. Uh, the journalists in questions but on other occasions there are and with this panoply of national security legislation that's been passed over the last 15 years there are all sorts of provisions uh, that could yep. potentially be triggered and you know journalists have, you know there's contempt of court there's defamation um, hence uh, the uh, as i mentioned the many many proposals which go to both sides of the equation so uh, so for instance peter grester the uh, journalist who was in, indeed imprisoned uh, in egypt um, when he was working for Al Jazeera, poor choice of employer, but anyway, that's a different story. He's now set up the Alliance for Journalist Freedom and they've got a, a log of claims, if you like, and amongst their seven recommendations, they go to both sides of the equation. So one is the whistleblower protections, and, and I agree, there's a legitimate uh, list of issues there. I, I don't necessarily take the public services view, but yeah, there, there's things to be balanced. And the other side of it is what they call the shield laws for the journalists who, by whatever means receive this information i mean if you to say to a journalist here's this information and you can't use it i mean you've completely defeated the idea of a free press it's like oh my god this has a stamp on it saying it's classified i better not write this story especially when your former colleagues in the public service are stamping classified on
1: everything (laughs) it's not it's not just about the chilling effect too so um there are some suggestions that the ABC or its employees could face some criminal charges for holding classified documents. Now, if that's the case, that would be completely unprecedented, but there are some suggestions that that might be the case, and and I'm not familiar with the law in that space, but that's also um, – uh, some, some people have suggested that they – that that legal prohibition could exist. It's also important in this context, and um, as far as we know, this doesn't specifically apply to this, but in recent years, with all these national security legislation that we have been passing, we have been prohibiting um, the use of this sort of information by journalists and by um, and, and and by bloggers and whoever else it is so in some of the national tr- security tranches legislation that was passed in the 2014 2015 period that we were very um, interested in at the IPA it now uh, they they developed this idea um that the attorney general can declare an asio action so not not just any military action as a special intelligence operation and one of the things that happens with special intelligence operations is that if you report it not if you leak classified information about it but if you report it you are you could suffer a penalty of up to 10 years imprisonment that is precisely the sort of thing that we're worried about here so what i think is um, and we should talk about your point in a, in a sec, um, Scott, because this um, journalist exceptionalism is 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 really horrifying. But um, but at the moment we're talking about. So what legislation needs to be changed? Um, uh, James Patterson and Tim Wilson are talking about having a inquiry into media law, and I think those is the sorts of things that we should be talking about. But I should we should bring in Evan here. Um, is it time for another media freedoms inquiry? I mean. We've had this for a little Uh, while now.
3: I I definitely support um, what Tim Wilson and and James Patterson were talking about. I think they're more talking about making sure that um, where uh, media freedoms overlap with our national security laws, there is some sort of consistency. For example, the metadata laws have a much higher threshold in which you can go after a journalist and some other tranches of of, uh, national security legislation. So making that consistent across the board to make sure there aren't loopholes would be adequate um, I think the 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 warrant for the raid was done at some small court in Queenbeeen. Um <laughs> so just making making one that, of Australia's most respected legalists making that a bit more <laughs> a, official and streamlined in in terms of the overlap between security laws and um and media freedoms would be important. Uh, the thing that really gets me on this is the hypocrisy on a, a lot of sides. Um uh, specifically Labor I mean, Labor were the ones that introduced the the, the Finkelstein review and then in, introduced laws to create a, a public interest media advocate, which would have a really damaging effect on media freedom. And Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, was the one that introduced it in the House of Repres- Representatives. When he was doing that, he said, the advocate will be a decision maker in relation to public interest tests that applies uh, to transactions involving national significant news and media entities. And that... It, the advocate would be appointed by the minister. <laughs> appointed by the minister, so you know you could have you could have Quinton Dempster, for example, yes. running uh, a ruler through every single news story in the country. Um, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And another thing uh, was no, I,
1: sorry, to ju- to jump in there. And yep. they've also backed every national security tranche, yes, I- over the last decade, no matter against advice from from their own people every time. The, con- the coalition comes up with a new national security piece of legislation, which have been very damaging to Australian liberties, in my view, and particularly on the internet. Um, they back it every time. And there's something to be said about the, the National Security Committee being basically
3: locked to the major parties, both Liberal and Labor, and no minor parties are allowed in. I think the last time a, a minor party or, or an independent was allowed in was when Gillard had to negotiate to let Andrew Wilkie on the committee, um, which... Uh, completely locks it out of scrutiny. Uh, it makes sure everything is really done behind closed doors, and the major parties can agree on what they see is in their benefit. And yet,
2: and, and yet, didn't and yet, didn't we have in the news this week a green senator complaining about Mike Pizzullo, the secretary of home affairs, calling her? So it can't be both. Again, it can't be both. Senator Alliance senator, I think. Oh, Senator yeah. Alliance, Rex Patrick. Again, yep. again it can't be. Both. Another thing that can't be both is it can't be both that journalists are uh, integral to the democratic process and that they're hopeless and useless. Because if they are, (laughs) if they are useless, then it doesn't matter. (laughs) But the 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 thing is, I don't think they are hopeless, by the way. But I think that uh, the question really is, on that, is that. You have to have a sort of a positive. What, what we're arguing about here is whether there's a positive case, a positive protection to be made for journalists, uh, whether they they should be ex- exempted, in some sense, shielded, if you like, from from the operation of the law because they are somehow
1: no. In this special. case, in in this case, definitely not, because um, uh, there's a sharp distinction between someone who is penalised for um, failing to uphold classified information, uh, failing to uphold their commitments to protect classified information and someone in the public receiving it and talking about that. So what what this is saying what the, the government may be trying to say is that if a document has been classified a decision made by the document to classify that is a law that applies to everyone not just people who report, have to hold If it.
2: reporting is a positive good whether it comes from journalists or citizen non-journalists if it's a positive good then shouldn't it be supported should isn't that the argument for say Having the ABC, isn't it an <laughs> argument? <laughs> now for, you're just trolling. <laughs> no, isn't it an argument for the po- for the positive support of reporting. If it is good, and this is the uh, this is the this is the claim. Left to their own devices, uh, in a in a neutral situation between journalists and non-journalists, the law will apply to them. We all agree that at a certain to a certain extent, at least, security classification is important. Uh, the question is, how do you have that good thing that you want reporting without some sort of positive act by government in support? Le- simply leaving it to you know, some sort of neutral marketplace won't get you that good thing or won't necessarily get you you're, that
1: good You're thing. wildly overcomplicating this. So um, if I learn something about what the government does, okay? If I'm handed information, someone tells me something, I am going to talk about it. I am going to talk about it with my colleagues. I am going to talk about it with my friends. I might write an opinion piece about it. I I am going to share information about what the government does because I, as a citizen, um, have the right to do so. Now, there is a marginal case, I have to admit, there is a marginal case about things like, imminent troop movements in a wartime or something like that, where I think the government does have a role at preventing um, people from publishing or strongly. Uh, it, it's actually a, less of a big problem
2: yeah, than, mar- than it marginal usually is. the case establishes that we're not talking about natural rights. All right? We've no, already but we're conceded not to, but, that it's a question of balance. Now, I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm, but I'm the, happy to concede that the government has overreached, but... Uh, no, you
1: can actually tell this. Nat- so, so without without getting too philosophical about it, you can actually tell the story without even getting there because the government has the um, right to try to dissuade you from talking about what it does so if um, uh, if, if a news inqu- news organization has information about true movements um, uh, then you know they should go up to that news organization and say look you you, you will let the bad guys win or something like that if you publish this um, that that's completely consistent but we are not talking about that and the marginal mm-hmm. case does not establish that because we are so far away from true uh, movements in this because we classify everything in, as in d- and, 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 and
0: just though. and just to pin down in, in your when, when you were making the point, Andrew, you, you, mentioned, you said, you know, journalists or citizens. And that is the key point, really, of the objection to uh, the proposals for shield laws to operate in a way that only protect journalists. So if, uh, if a journalist sees a classified document and writes something about it, they're protected. But if Chris Berg sees it and mentions it to you, you could both go to jail. You know, that's the yeah. logical yeah. extension
2: yeah. And, of the no, laws I, I that agree that it probably. should be about distribution of this information, whether if you protect it for some, you should protect it yeah. for all. And, 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 the, the, and, and the rule should be the same. Because
1: freedom of, freedom of the press is not a good construct. It's freedom of speech. Yes. Yeah, so that, that is what we are That's the more
2: basic about. right. Yeah. And I, I agree with mm. you about that. I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that that right exists within uh, – as it actually exists in the world as opposed to as it might exist in theory. Um once it comes into contact with the world, then there are other there are other things that are, it's balanced against. And what we're really talking about here is whether the balance is correct, not whether um, not whether it is correct to prevent in some circumstances the distribution of classified information, and that's what's at stake. If you don't like the current law, that's what Parliament is for. Yeah. No, that's right just that's just
3: fair. just to pivot. It, I found it really interesting how quickly and how much prominence this story, got, uh, in, and there's a lot of journalists that are new fans <laughs> of freedom of speech, lots of new fans of freedom of speech on Twitter, lots of uh, new fans of freedom of speech dominating the news stories every day, when hardly any of them spoke out against what happened to Andrew Bolt, and hardly any of them spoke out against Bill Lake being hauled up to the, the Human Rights Commission. had the QUT. Or the had, QUT, all, um, or like the QUT case, which, which affects everyone. Um, so I think There is a lot of hypocrisy on the media's part in advancing this issue and not others. They've only advanced freedom of speech when it affects them, not when it affects regular students or um, columnists or cartoonists. Um, We had the case where high-profile, you know, Twitter left people like Mike Carlton and Ben Eltham tweeting out there saying, you know, where's the IPA on this? It's meant to be the voice for freedom uh, when we had literally been tweeting about it all day and, and, and had things uh, and on the And got an website. op-ed up in the
1: Spectator, was it? Uh, uh, no? uh, spiked online no, it spiked on
3: yeah. um, uh, begging for IPA consistency. Where were Ben Eltham and Mike Carlton <laughs> yes. on, on Andrew Bolt? And, and Bill Lee? Piling, they were absolutely they were nowhere on. to be seen. It is the hypocrisy of the highest order.
1: No, and what and what we need is a pro free speech movement across the board, and obviously yes. this is this is what the IPA does, and this is why we're having this conversation. But we we need more of that, and we need that um, it should be a bipartisan voice, and people of both left and right should come around this. We need freedom of speech in order to debate the things and, that we and, all care about, and
3: hopefully this debate triggers then other debates around it uh, as to. What we do about freedom of speech in this country? Whether we should, as part of this sort of review, also review our particularly harsh defamation laws, also review 18C, um, and you know that would be the kind of movement we
0: need. Yep, absolutely. So, Mike Ben, if you're listening, pick up the phone. <laughs> Happy to have a chat. Good talk. Good talk. Um, Adam Moore. Uh, Let's uh, jump across the Pacific to the USA where uh, the intellectual Class, uh, at least on the right, has been uh, in a bit of a flurry over the past couple of weeks.
1: All right, so this is a bit complicated to explain, Scott, um, and what I'll do is I'll try to talk us so, through... So, lean, wh- lean back, everybody, <laughs> in, your, in your armchairs. Pull up a chair- beanbag, Pour yourself a glass of wine. Um, so, what has happened in the United States is that there's been this big inter-conservative um, right dispute. It started with, uh, most recently, um, I think it was last week or the week before, an article published by um, the... Editor of uh, the op-ed editor of the New York Post in the magazine. First thing, Sorab Amari writing a article called "Against David Frenchism." David French is a conservative and a National Review columnist and 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 lawyer and um, uh, an advocate for particularly um, religious liberties and, and so forth. Um, what the dispute is around this, as I understand it. Um, so, uh, Amari calls David Frenchism a persuasion or a sensibility um uh, around classical liberalism. So classical liberalism tries to build legal and political structures where people who have different values can work side by side. Conservative Christians can work side by side or exist in the same community as um, what, what Amari would describe libertines or, or so forth and we can sort of talk a little bit about the lots of different aspects of this but this is why this is an interesting debate uh, an interconservative conservative debate um, is it really I mean it sort of started with the flight 93 election argument um, the famous essay published um, in 2016 about the Donald Trump uh, about Donald Trump's candidacy, which argued that we're at a moment of such crisis that we we need to um, uh, take over the institutions and we need to take over the um, the power of uh, uh, power of the u s. federal government in order to push back against the left. In March this year, first First things magazine also published an article. Um, uh, that got less attention, but is really the manifesto for this movement or for this intellectual movement um, called against the dead consensus. The consensus they're talking about is is the alliance between um, classical liberals, libertarians, and conservatives that has prevailed in U.S. politics and really in Australian politics since since uh, oh, during the Cold War and so forth. I, I think there's a lot to break down here. Um, there was a very interesting. Um, uh, interview with Amari on a First Things podcast with Mark Bowlin. Of course, Mark Bowlin came out for the IPA, um, uh, and they do interesting things yeah. like calling... Sen- sen- now senior
0: editor for First Things, great now man. Senior-
1: yep, um, and and it's a really interesting podcast. But, but in that, um, uh, Amari calls for things like decency and obscenity laws talks about um, or uh, free speech or decries free speech absolutism and and so forth so um, uh, Andrew you and I have been talking about this this uh, debate for for quite some time and I thought we might try to break it down but I want to start with uh, we we hear a lot about what this new conservative or post liberal conservatism um, is against but but what is it for and I've, I'm I, I've got some ideas but I'd like to hear your view about what what do they stand for what they would like us as a on the centre right, to actually do now,
2: yeah. And the the question, um, what do conservatives stand for, actually gets right to the heart of the question: what is conservatism? It's actually hard to address the question without first describing what it is that conservatism is really about. Um, and I think uh, in the Amari piece, he actually conflates two kinds of criticisms of the dead consensus. Um, you know that which is a name that sort of begs the question a little bit: um, is it dead or not? But was there a consensus? Was there a consensus? <laughs> um, so quite a tendentious headline, but um, he conflates sort of two two issues, and they go to this question, I think, of what is conservatism, and then what do, what are the things that it wants to do? Um, there's kind of a, a classical conservative critique of liberalism uh, as an ideology. Um, that basically you mean port-
1: classical liberalism in the, the, the in, in our sense.
2: So so liberalism in the broad sense. So conser-
1: in, individualism. Uh, yeah. yeah,
2: and so conservatism conservatism has never really accepted that there is a distinction to be made among schools of liberalism. Anything that a, has an axiomatic view of uh, individual autonomy and choice being the highest good, um, the idea that our institutions should aspire to some sort of value neutrality. Um, Basically, the argument is that anything that posits a system of natural rights is positing natural rights as a set of axioms. They must be axiomatic because they are not debatable. And if they are axiomatic, then deductions follow. And it's that deductive logic that sweeps through the established social order that conservatives have always opposed. That's a classical conservative View, sort of the Patrick
0: Deneen, which you've, you've written well, about. He just, so this is the question. Yeah. So
2: Deneen is another one, like Omari, who conflates two things. I think it's important to keep separate to, to really answer Chris's question. The first is this classical conservative idea that reason, or at least deductive reason, from axioms is a false god, right? That it's not neutral, that it has its own internal working logic that will set aside or displace existing value. That's one thing. There is, on the right now... And you see it in, I think we're going to talk about it, That uh, I think Chris is going to raise this, but there's like some guys who took over, who used to be con- uh, connected with um, Breitbart, who took over a classic conservative magazine called Human Events. One of uh, Ronald
1: Reagan's favourite magazines. So it's interesting their, to see which direction they've gone.
2: Their argument is more of a almost, uh, I mean, I hesitate to use it because it sounds internally contradictory, but a kind of postmodern, ...conservatism that accepts the recent... ...the much more recent left-wing critique of institutions as merely expressions this of power this is uh, will will chamberlain i
1: want to i want to jump in there so so just to explain what that arg- argument is because i it, it does go to yeah. the heart of you most were, of my questions you
0: were right, right. andrew it's on his computer it he is, was it about is to raise it
1: literally, literally on my computer um so this is a article that was published by will chamberlain who now is the publisher editor in chief of human events um and it's called against peacetime conservatism and so it's Dividing, it's really this post-Flight 93 election story. Um, I'll, I'll quote from it because it's, it's interesting. So peacetime conservatives complain that their colleagues have abandoned their principles. Wartime conservatives refuse to adhere to self-defeating principles. The first rule of wartime conservatism is principles that prevent you from winning are probably bad principles. So this is, from, from my perspective, this is completely horrifying. Um, to the extent that, and I'll continue to quote, um, human events, you'll notice that we don't have a strong stance on technocratic issues. We're open to heterodoxy on things like t- taxes, trade, regulation, and healthcare. On, and other issues that in prior decades might have been issues where there was only one conservative position, but there are issues where we brook no dissent. These are the metapolitical issues, things like social media censor, so, sorry, social media censorship, immigration, and courts. So, and we'll bring in Evan here. What is a conservatism that doesn't mind whether taxes are? too high or too low, that doesn't mind about free trade, that doesn't mind about regulation. This is – are we now – is the conservative movement now so unmoored from a policy or principle that it doesn't really matter? All that matters is that Facebook is kind to conservatives. Is that the big issue here?
3: Yeah, there seems to be some kind – the view seems to be we have to win over and take over the institutions from the left and then use that to – to do our own thing. So, more aggressive family tax policies or more spending on infrastructure and manufacturing to try to sort of win back that sort of breadwinning uh, mentality of the family. So, more family policies that are pushed by uh, some politicians in the US. So, religious conservatives seem to want more trade offs in the balance. The idea of hanging a court judge in, in front of religious conservatives doesn't seem to be enough for this, this sort of new wave.
1: Yeah, so I mean, uh, Andrew, we should we should go back to you because I, I, I rudely interrupted you by getting to read an article that I just think is horrifying. But um, uh, th- but this 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 is not the traditional Anglo-American idea of conservatism, really well, anymore, it, is it?
2: I, well, I would say I would say that it, it is in in the sense that I think that a lot of what people think of as conservatism is based on a misreading of Burke. Um, Burke was not a skeptic. Burke was not a Humean. Burke was first and foremost. What we would call a realist, uh, that he believed that there was a highest good, um, and he did believe that there were social values that were prior to liberty. At one point in uh, his reflections, uh, reflections on the revolution in France, he talks about how is he to celebrate the uh, is he to celebrate the escape of a prisoner simply because he has now restored his liberty? Uh, Burke mocks this idea. He says no, because obviously his liberty exists within a society that needed to separate him from itself to secure what it thinks is good. So <laughs>
1: the Speaking of criminal justice and incarceration. Says, <laughs> which is obviously something that I'm interested in too. I think
2: that what it comes down to, but I do think to just to return to this point that Burke's critique of reason as a false god is connected to but distinct from this idea of wartime conservatism, we must take back the institutions and use them for our own power. The, the, the point that they are making, um, and to be fair to them, the reason that he sets up, to be fair to this guy Chamberlain, the reason he sets up this distinction is because he's re- he starts the article with a reference to the Godfather and when uh, in The Godfather, the moment where Sonny sacks uh, the Tom Hagen, who's the conciliary, and he says, you're a great, you know, you're a great man, Tom, I love you, but you are not a wartime conciliary. And that's the, that's so, to be fair to him, he is, he has, does have his tongue in cheek with the terminology. His point is a sound one, though. The distinctions that he sets up in that article are actually the things that are, I mean, perhaps Phrased in the most sort of clickbait-worthy, you know, clickworthy <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of thing, but he, uh, the distinctions he sets up are, are the right ones, and it comes back to this idea that we were talking about with the media raids about whether there are certain things that you think are good and therefore warrant positive support from the government, and what separates these two these two groups. Why I think it's worth distinguishing between um, these two currents on the right right wing critique of classical liberalism is that there are certain institutions, and this goes back to the question you asked, what do they want to do? There are certain things that they disagree on about um, what it is, uh, which things in particular, as opposed to a system of deductions from ideology, Which are what are the particular things that they want to secure? That latter group that talks about, in a kind of postmodern terms, about power, they're actually, in a sense, much more liberal in the um, not in an ideological sense but the, some of the institutions that they are that they think they are defending are things like freedom of speech, uh, tolerance um, they are uh, they are almost all more supportive than Soro Bamari would be of issues regarding um, gender identity and sexuality um, whereas the classical conservative view has more of a, a social conservative, component. So that's why I think it's worth keeping them distinct. But the, the point is that what looks like inconsistency in an approach to established institutions actually relies on a deeper consistency about which ones of those institutions are good and which ones are not.
1: No, you see, I I agree with you in that sense. It is actually a very consistent worldview. And and I I, I, I like it at an intellectual level that there is a um, more openness to this sort of thing, and it's an interesting debate. But as a matter of let's blow up the conservative coalition or the center-right coalition, um, it, it, it's a disaster. And it's also a disaster from a policy sense on their own grounds. So um, uh, Rich Larry, who's the editor of National Review and and actually really sympathetic to a lot of um, the policy prescriptions of many in the in, in this conservative um, uh, m- movement has has a really powerful article in Politico, and he and and he writes the animating insight of these quote post liberal writers and their allies seems to be we are losing the culture war so badly that the only option left is to impose our values on everyone else. How will they do that? Question mark. Good question. We'll get to you. We'll get back to you after we are done savaging
2: our allies. Um, this, well, this, yeah. is this, is this is an unfair characterisation. <laughs> I mean, no, because the critique doesn't start with we're losing. The critique starts with we are being actively defeated, right? So it doesn't start with the idea that these institutions, just as they're working through their normal processes, have led to a result where we are now unpopular in a way that we weren't 50 years ago. It is we are being anathematized actively by the people in control of those institutions. How, what do we use those institutions for when we get them? How do we take control of them? What does that mean? Well, it means to do exactly the same thing that the left has done over the preceding three generations. That's the point. It is... The reason why the culture war has come back is it all comes back to this question of whether you believe that you can have a system of modi vivendi a system of institutions that are nothing more than a second-best compromise between competing values. There's one side of politics that has not believed that for a long time. And now what you are seeing is, in in a classical sense, reaction. You are seeing people say, if it is now the case that these institutions are geared against us, what option do we have but to take them back and make them do the things that we want them to do. The
1: solution has to be liberalism because this is a political and cultural dead end. So um, uh, I'm just thinking about – so this has been in America. Well, well, one of of the points, of course, is there was never
0: a dead consensus at a philosophical level. This is – it's a political – fusionism is a political project. Like conservatives never stopped being conservative and – uh, classical Liberals never stopped being Classical Liberals. It was, it's just a political project that uh, William F. Buckley Jr. put together. It was, it,
3: it, 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 it's, it's finding... And the Soviet Union put it's fi- together for us. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 It's finding allies and you have a certain uh, portion of the movement that thinks that uh, all these victories for the libertarian Classical Liberal side in, in tax cuts and, and other sort of libertarian victories haven't delivered what they want.
1: Yeah. yeah, but it's a well, question.
2: It's a distinction between liberties and liber- liberty, right? It's a question between there are certain institutions that we all value that can broadly be described as liberal, or I would describe them as our freedoms, and these are these are important. These were hard won. I, I'm the last person who wants to trade away all the work that went into getting these things. The question is whether they they exist because of a system of thought or whether they need to be defended as particular good things. And if it's the latter case, then you have, a, then you have an argument for keeping them in a positive sense, making a positive uh, att- attempt to keep them as they are rather than letting their internal logic run away from them. And this is why a lot of what the right has uh, in the United States has started talking about is whether private governance is actually erasing the meaning of these freedoms so I have freedom of speech but what good is it to me if I can't publish anything on the internet without you know without you know we just saw we just saw Georgia democratically passed a law restricting abortion what have we seen 180 of the biggest tech companies in the United States sign up to boycott Georgia so The laissez-faire approach is self-defeating. And this is not just a conservative thing. Uh, Schumpeter wrote about this, uh, about how left to its own devices, a negative framing of our liberties will lead to our liberties being erased. And that's the dispute. Can the state be used to positively buttress these things that we all know are good? Let me let me,
1: let me give an Australian example because I've been thinking through this discussion and how it applies to, to Australia. And um, the thing that really bugs me a lot about it is um, we often talk about um, that famous phrase used by... Um, uh, well, I forget who it was used by, but anyway, um, the, the phrase that politics is downstream from culture. That this, was, to my that, that was Breitbart. Breitbart, Breitbart. Yep. This, this strikes me as the complete rejection of that claim because rather than – that tells you that you should focus on culture, right? That doesn't – to focus on politics is just sort of trying to pick up the pieces. So what we're instead talking about, what these conservatives – in the US are instead talking about is um, what we need to do is use politics to attack the culture or to change the culture or to do something to the culture. We need to um, weaponize politics. So so what is an Australian example? So thinking through the gay marriage debate, right? Um, and social conservatives spent a great deal of time trying to um, uh, prevent same-sex marriage from being passed, prevent to, to, um, uh, to, to defeat it at the plebiscite and then prevent it from being passed in the parliament, or at least object to it being passed in the parliament. Um, And then after they had fundamentally lost that debate, only then did many social conservatives start to argue for religious freedom. Now, to be clear, that was not the IPA's position. The IPA didn't take a position on gay marriage, because we sort of view it as a conscience matter, Um, and we argued very firmly for religious freedom, that whole debate but if the social conservative movement in australia had accepted that this was almost certainly going to happen the polls suggested that absolutely it could happen but it should happen on their terms and it could be a bargaining and negotiation time to set up a liberal framework that protects both freedom of speech and the right of same-sex couples to get married they would have been a lot better off Uh, right now we're in this well, right post now, right, well, post right, now discussion. Is,
2: right now, Israel Folau doesn't have freedom of religious expression. The demand is that he convert to someone else's religion. But that's
1: the point. That's, that's yeah, no no I, no, no. I think, no, no. I think, no, no. I, think I think, rather than spending all our time, or rather, than, I should say, social conservatives and social conservatives spending their time trying to prevent cultural change, they should be spending their time building liberal neutral frameworks in which they can act and we can have these Burkean style communities. I everyone,
2: and I, everyone's a liberal when he's in the minority, I think. <laughs>
1: Well no, no that's <laughs> that's right. And that's and that isn't that the huge change that's happened over the last twenty years. That that suddenly um, we're in a. I, I don't want to say we're in a post-Christian, but we're in a environment in which religious sentiment is not in the majority. No, but I
2: think I think the, there's a few things about that. One, I think we could we could go back and forth all day about the tactics of the, no, I, the I think we have actually, and I, and I don't and I don't <laughs> think I don't at, think that looking that's at w- the clock, I don't think that that's that's worthwhile to dispute the tactics. I would say that there there was a, a conservative argument for compromise that was never made. Um, The the true Burkean compromise would have been uh, civil unions uh, failing that, the end of civil marriage itself. Conservatives lost the dispute about civil marriage a long time before uh, same-sex marriage was introduced. Um, It departed from the sacrament a long time ago anyway. uh, Roger Scruton has made that point repeatedly. I think that... But what it does come down to, again, is the question of... it's It's not just conservatives are losing it's that conservatives are being defeated same-sex marriage went from something that barack obama campaigned against twice including his re-election campaign in 2011 for the 2012 election to the law all around the western world in a matter of years now part of that is technological change it's much easier to uh, organize political activism now and get people engaged but part of it is that at the highest levels of our culture, and this this is the thing that conservatives have been very bad at accepting, in my view, is that elites matter. It matters what gets written in universities. It matters what gets said on the ABC. It matters that all journalists have the same opinion. And this is inseparable from the rapid change in public views about that particular matter, but also as a model for how it is that people's opinions can be shaped by the capture of elite venues by one side of politics and that's why you get this wartime, peacetime dynamic. What
1: I think we need is more libertarian conservative podcasts.
0: That's, yeah, that's my yeah. view. Yeah, so I, yes, whether, whether, whether the, um, the great mass of the people who got to vote in a plebiscite were could trace all of their views back to um, the intellectual it, classes is, it, is an open without question.
3: Without taking much, too much time, it, it also – this whole debate in the US reminds me of uh, the – turnbull prime ministership where the liberal party (laughs) and 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 post the same-sex marriage debate where this liberal the liberal party was this having this massive debate on what it is and who it is post trump and brexit should it be appealing to these working class base or should it be appealing to this inner city base um and like the similarities are are very stark between them
0: yeah no i think that's right and and, and scott morrison made that call yeah successfully as it turns out Um, Andrew, you have been very articulate today, so you get the floor. You've done been doing a little bit of work lately uh, in your day job well, I think uh, in the, criminal justice I think reform. This touch,
2: I think this does touch you, on something that, uh, that you mentioned, Scott, which is that the institutional reality on the centre-right remains that uh, established institutions uh, have money, they have diverse views within them, and sometimes this actually does produce good policy outcomes that people can embrace <laughs> Uh, there's an overlapping consensus that forms despite philosophical differences. One such thing is criminal justice reform in the United States. Donald Trump signed into law at the end of last year and had a big celebration in April for his uh, what he called the, what was called the First Step Act, which was a criminal justice reform for. Uh, a federal, the federal system, this built-on work that comes from our friends at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a fusionist institution, if ever there was one. Yep. Um, and I think... Uh, so, you know, what, what we're seeing is a change, perhaps, in the orthodoxy on the centre-right. I'm going to keep saying that until the prophecy fulfils itself. <laughs> we are, Here in Australia, yeah. Uh, because... Uh, and so, to that end... Uh, over the last three years, I have been uh, engaged in a project of developing criminal justice reforms for Australia uh, and I th- and translating a lot of that good work from the United States. And our situation here in Australia is not as dissimilar on criminal justice from the United States as we might have once complacently believed. And to illustrate that, I had a report out this week that builds on some research from the United States Um From a place called the skeptical libertarian (laughs) Um, adapting that to the australian context um, which is a comparison of the rise in prison spending or absolute prison spending in absolute terms versus police spending in absolute terms and showing that over the last uh 10 years as our spending on prison has increased that money is in a sense being traded off against our spending on other areas of the criminal justice system including the police why do we care about this? We care about this because there is a one of the most consistent findings in criminology. And set aside your skepticism about criminolo- all of the about all of the sociological just the general space of yeah, criminology, just the, the whole thing. But <laughs> no, no, no. But one of the one of the findings that seems to be uh, very solid and is supported by um, you know economic theory as well is that the police are actually better for community safety than prisons. And this is because criminals don't really think down downstream, they don't think about the long-term effects. If you change a prison sentence from 10 to 15 years, you don't actually affect anyone's behaviour. But if you have a policeman on the corner watching what people are doing, they do change their behaviour. So we care about that. And the point of this report really about setting up this ratio and comparing the Australian states to American states and to European countries and showing that Australian states are actually closer in in these terms to the United States than to Europe is really just to illustrate for people the trade-offs that we see when prison spending increases the way it has. It's now $4.5 billion on prison operations alone each year in Australia. This is up 40% uh, or or sorry, incarceration is up 40% in 10 years. This is not because of crime. There's no evidence that crime has gone up considerably in that period of time. This is policy. This is... Uh, how we distribute our money within the system. And it's the kind of thing that institutions like the IPA, institutions like the ones that the Americans are squabbling over <laughs> actually exist to do. Yep.
0: No, good work. No, great report. Uh, we'll we'll link to that online. And uh, yes, definitely there is money on the table that we can claim back for better policing and better public safety. So another cracker report from Andrew Bushnell. Uh, covered in, where was it covered in, Evan? In
3: the Australian uh, Legal Affairs section written Excellent. by uh, the great Chris
0: Merrick. Yeah, no, great work, great work. And uh, we have come to that section of the podcast where we talk uh, on, books, on books and culture, what we've been uh, reading, watching or listening to. Who wants to take it away?
1: I'll have a go. Um, uh, so I have been reading the book called Super Intelligence. Paths, Dangers, Strategies by Nick Postrom. It was actually published in 2014, contrary to your introduction, but that's all cool. Um, this is a book about um, artificial intelligence safety and artificial intelligence risk. This um, Imagine the artificial intelligence safety discussion being how we're inventing these amazing technologies. Right now, artificial intelligence has a lot of narrow bounds about things like pattern recognition. But what if we invented an artificial general? intelligence, um, would we have a Skynet situation? So would the artificial intelligence wake up like they do, like it does in Terminator, take over the world? Um, what happens if we only have one of these? W- will there be a monopoly on this artificial general intelligence? Will it try to defend itself and so forth? It sounds very wacky. I want to be I want to be clear. Um, and he talks about it, super intelligence, and goes through it in um, uh, a lot of interesting ways. But the idea of AI risk and AI safety is something that well, is worth discussing now. Bostrom,
2: Bostrom's view, at least judged on his earlier work, would be that uh, superintelligence would be fine as long as it was him. <laughs> uh, because, so Bostrom is, uh, I don't know if he still is, but he was a transhumanist. Uh, Bostrom I could turn all of our culture picks into the debate we were no, just having this
1: bring it back to natural rights
2: but, uh, yeah, but well I mean the, the <laughs> thing about transhumanism it wasn't is, an opening no 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 it, it, an is, it, is, it is an opening <laughs> no, if Nick, like, someone like Nick Bostrom the transhumanist their idea is to realise in fact uh, what liberal theory posits which is that the human being or the human person is not actually tied to its incarnation but is instead or should be a free-floating spirit that crosses time and space instantaneously.
1: Well, that's not in this book. But um, <laughs> this is more about um, AI AI risk and safety. And um, and the book, he, he says he's actually an optimist, but it's quite a pessimistic book. Um, and uh, one way to think about the AI risk and safety question is um, the famous paperclip problem. What happens if you told an artificial intelligence in charge of a... Production at a paperclip factory that it has one single goal, which is maximise paperclip production. Um, It would then potentially go on to convert all the resources on Earth and much of the resources in the universe into paperclips. That would be a bad outcome. We would all be turned into paperclips. So, so thinking about some of the,
0: I have have a question for you and Bostrom.
1: No, please, on on his behalf, I'm having. If
0: if AI (laughs) had become self-aware and taken over, how would we know?
1: Well, this is one of the interesting questions and it may hide it. From us um, mm. uh, may and, and that, was, that was an earlier yep. the,
2: uh, Theory happened. that he had That would explain right. A lot of the stuff You're we're talking about, about, the, about the probability That we live in a simulation well, We, we, we well
1: may well be there And this probably. is just so uh, This is just entertainment we're just the, This points. whole conservatism Debate is just <laughs> it's just To fill in the hours Before death Yeah um, No so, so why I wanted To bring this up <laughs> Just to give Andrew a chance To talk um, Why I wanted To bring this up Is to compare it Against Actually a paper Much more recent That um, was written By a um, someone we're working with at RMIT, um, uh, Mark Miller, by his col- with his colleagues Alison Dutman and uh, Christine, Pe- Christine Peterson. And this is about decentralized approaches to um, reducing risk. Because if if you notice in that story, the real key thing is that there's only one artificial intelligent agent. There's only one general intelligence. In fact, of course, we don't live in that world. We live in a world where there will hopefully be multiple competing um, uh, countries, multiple competing individuals who have artificial intelligence, and AI will check AI. Uh, this is actually one of the more exciting developments that in, in things like cybersecurity... Until
2: one defeats all the others.
1: Until one defeats all the others, but I believe in markets, and um, uh, I, I think entrepreneurs will solve that problem, Andrew. Um, uh, so so we we can enter a world where we are able to use these sorts of things to check the risks of alternative AI agents. Now, as I said, this all sounds very wacky. It read the book reads very wacky because it's so far out. But it's a general area, genuine area of research. And as I say, it is worth thinking about now than until afterwards, where we're all in the simulation, just thinking, wouldn't it have been good if we had thought through this issue beforehand?
0: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> now, speaking of superintelligence, Evan, what have you been listening to, mate?
3: Um, I've been listening to the uh, podcast accompanying the HBO series Chernobyl. Now I know you've already spoken at length about. Evan Chernobyl. had to ask for permission to talk on about Chernobyl, uh, and he was like, cl- "Definitely uh, talk th- about Chernobyl." This yeah.
1: is
0: but the <laughs> third Chernobyl <laughs> culture pick that we've had. It is a very, forward. it is
3: a very good series. Um, <laughs> I've been listening to the podcast, which is a discussion between um, Craig Mazin, the, the writer and producer and director, uh, and and Peter Sagal, and um, it, it's. Speaks about the show, speaks about things behind the show and things behind uh, the scenes that happened, things that were deleted, but particularly goes into detail about uh, the historical elements of the Soviet Union, what was going on back then. Um, particularly the, the quote about that interests me was the one about the circle of accountability, about how there's someone always watching you as there's someone always watching me mm. and there's someone watching the person who is watching me, uh, which means... If there, the circle um, is really you're being watched by everyone, and it's really that collectivist uh, mentality but, but of it's it.
1: A, it's accountability on a specific margin. It's accountability to make sure that you uphold Soviet ideology in that story, not like accountability for no, Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly,
3: exactly. And there was a lot of that. (laughs) Um, uh, Another few uh, things that I got out of it, uh, the happiness, the quote, the happiness of all mankind was strung to the town that had just been evacuated Mm. uh, while they were going through and uh, trying to kill all the the dogs uh, in the town. Um, uh, The... Main protagonist Valerie Legasov wasn't actually in the trial, like in in real life, the, the, the historical. He wasn't actually in that trial. He went to Vienna and 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 ran the Soviet line and came back and wasn't in the trial. And also uh, Lisa, uh,
0: because it's such a great scene in the in the actual show. And he and
3: actually and and they were talking about in the podcast that he wanted to, um, even though it wasn't really done then, he wanted to. Have Lagasov give the presentation to explain what actually happened. The the summary of events that he, he is so thrilling at the end that he goes through and how it actually happened. Um, what was um, uh, true was the um, uh, the bloke that was responsible for uh, the actual power plant. All of his Diatlov. All, all of all of his. Uh, comments throughout that and the pressuring of the workers that were in, in in charge of pushing the buttons was true and all of his comments in the courtroom were actually true. They actually happened. Um, uh, because he's,
1: he's a full Iraqi propaganda minister um, guy just talking about things that just aren't happening.
3: Exactly, exactly. And I think he knew himself that he would eventually... Um, I think he himself had many suicide attempts and he knew himself that where he was going and, and the responsibility... That he had for the plant. Um, they also talked about the accents. Um, obviously, the show is completely with British accents, and they thought that Russian or Ukrainian accents would distract the viewer watching from the actual yeah, you start, what was happening. Start
0: to sound like Boris and Natasha, if you. If you.
3: Exactly, and also I, I found really interesting uh, Emily Watson's character of Yulana... Uh, you would remember Lagasov goes and tells her to find out from uh, the, the workers affected in the hospital exactly what happened. Um, she wasn't actually real. Uh, yeah. in, no, in no historical evidence was she real, but she was a representation of dozens of scientists uh, that were on the same mission. So they felt for the purpose of the narrative to include this character uh, in order to lay that to bear.
0: And produced a brilliant result. Yes, it is a a dramatised version of events and very, very well done. Yes. Very, very well done. So good good podcast to go with everything else. I might jump in there and um, talk about uh, my recent fave, which is after a 10-year hiatus, uh, there there was a series called Deadwood, which ran for three seasons, uh, about a a real town, actually, and uh, with many real characters, uh, rose in the... Uh, A mining town arose in the Black Hills of Dakota at a time when it was Indian Territory, so it wasn't formally governed by law. Um, And uh, the program had many attractions, Um, some great acting, some great writing from David uh, uh, Milch, the creator, who was um, uh, also the uh, main writer for NYPD Blues, uh, NYPD Blue and uh, Hill Street Blues even before that. So... Tremendous language uh, and dramatization. <laughs> uh, language we could not use on this podcast. Well,
1: exactly. it was uh, We uh, haven't decided how sweary this podcast is yet, I don't think. Well, but, no, there's two but
0: aspects to the language.
1: It's <laughs> this sort of, um, you know, but ra- it's definitely not that. It's
0: sweet. this roundabout <laughs> 19th century formalized language with lots of you know, roundabout phrases and extended metaphors, but punctuated by, you know, Olympic-class swearing <laughs> uh, <laughs> that they created for the show. And, um, uh, and the show was always of interest uh, to libertarians because it arose in this lawless badland. Um, and indeed, uh, one of the people who went there looking for wealth was a former marshal who resigned his badge. But they finish up having to create law, and they actually do it themselves. Um, while Bill Hickok did, was indeed shot in that town and in the Deadwood series they, they get together and they don't just uh, hang the bloke who shot their, their, uh, their friend while Bill Hickok, they actually ran a trial. So it's sort of this I- idea that um, just because there's no formal state in action um, uh, communities can actually create that law in a certain way. So there's all sorts of commentary on that. Um this takes place um, in, in real time, if you like, as in 10 years after the events of the series, it comes back. The industrial class swearing is there, the great over the top acting, the great the great writing. Uh, it's really just a, a reunion for the viewers as much as as it is for the actors. And uh, I for those who are fans of it, I highly commend it for those, who don't like Olympic class swearing, I wouldn't recommend it.
1: Let me intellectualise it for a sec because that sort of private governance is more common than you think and uh, I'll recommend a book... uh, by Ed Stringham um, uh, called Private Governance Creating I th- I Order. I think you've already recommended that Have a number of that? times. Oh, really? yeah. Yeah, no, no, well, no. That's embarrassing. Not, no, not in this I'm, episode. I'm going to re, re-recommend <laughs> it because <yeah. laughs> that that's just a really common thing across a whole bunch of domains, not just in the Wild West, but in financial markets, in medieval trade, in all, all sorts of spaces. Have I really recommended that before? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, sure. Okay. I'm sure that's right.
0: come up. No, no, but, but it's sort of like Deadwood well, without the swearing.
1: He is paying me quite a bit of money to yep. do that.
0: So. No, very good. <laughs> We'll put all these links up at the end. Thank you, James.
2: Uh, Well, I'll try and uh, resist the temptation to say that Chernobyl is about the way uh, deductive ideology displaces practical knowledge in institutions. This is why we only have
1: you on occasion. And (laughs) and I'll try and resist the temptation
2: to say that Deadwood (laughs) illustrates why order is the highest political good. (laughs) Uh, And I will just quickly, very quickly, I'll just say um, I've been listening to uh, this. This came across my Twitter feed from Peter Hitchens, who's the the good Hitchens, uh, (laughs) who shared this uh, BBC series of podcasts. It's apparently an annual thing called the Wreath Lectures. Uh, This year's uh, been given by Jonathan Sumption, who was an academic uh, barrister, very high-profile barrister, and then was appointed straight from the bar to the Supreme Court, which is the Tony Blair-created substitute for the old House of Lords, the highest court in the United Kingdom, Very, very smart man. Has been described as the brain of Britain. Uh, More... uh, And he gives a kind of... uh, It's kind of a classical liberal uh, discussion of what he calls laws expanding empire. And what he's talking about is the way that uh, legislation and judge-made law uh, is increasingly uh, displacing the power of the parliament And he thinks that this is bad because you get much more stable social equilibria through the political process than through the legal process. He's very strong about um, how the European Convention on Human Rights has been interpreted by the court in Strasbourg. And he talks a little bit about the kind of thing that I was saying about how rights, when they become axioms, um, you start getting these kind of these deductions and all these existing values that you have start to get displaced so very smart man i could go on about it because i have some criticisms of some of the things he says but i definitely recommend it because it's a very thoughtful take on the role that parliament actually plays in a westminster constitution and that of course has a lot of implications for us here in australia and for this debate about whether you need positive law to reinforce your traditional freedoms
0: oh and uh absolutely and Going right back to our first discussion, um, I mentioned some bad ideas. One of them, uh, Jeffrey Robertson, uh, the Australian-born uh, UK-based lawyer, his first reaction to the media raids was, this proves why Australia needs a Bill of Rights. <laughs> it's like a
1: worse I, b- I'm not against that, but I, I'm, I am I, I only want us to take the First Amendment and then just thunk it into the Australian Constitution and leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> but but it would never it be that. It would that ju- That is just not going to no, happen. No. no, no,
0: no. It would be the European
3: Bill of Rights. Quentin Dempster was actually tweeting at the IPA wanting us to support a Bill of Rights, and we need the IPA to come out in support of it, whereas uh, I don't think our members would appreciate that. Yeah,
0: no, no. When, uh, Quentin, when you get behind... Andrew Bolt and um, and the QUT students will we'll talk mm. <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, No, some great culture picks there if you've been listening to looking forward if you don't want to miss any future episodes hit subscribe on your podcast app right now uh, we've got some great specials coming up which of which you'll hear more later um, so make sure you're a subscriber so you get the notifications uh, looking Forward is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, to support our research and this podcast, join or donate at ipa.org.au. As I say, it's end of financial year. Our appeal is in full swing uh, would love to have you get around the IPA a big thank you to our pon- panellists today Dr Chris Berg thanks Scott Evan Mulholland thank you Andrew Bushnell thank you and uh, the great team in uh, the IPA James Bolt and uh, Saul Muscatel so we'll be back with more looking forward to next week thank you